the the I've seen maybe two or three cats in my career with that have gotten in with the porcupine. Obviously, right. not bitten the porcupine, but they have. It just proves but... our our general suggestion that cats are much much clever. Yes, don't bite the porcupine. When you see the porcupine, <laughs> uh, just leave it alone. Exactly. Sorry for saying sorry. Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Per Podcast. And once again, I am here with Dr. Kelly St. Denis. Hello, Hello, Kelly. Hi, Yola. How are you today? I am doing great. great. It is sunny outside, so I like that. It's a little wintry, which I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, my question to you is, is there snow already up north? Uh, I am far north now, four hours north of Toronto. And um, there was snow, but it's actually melted again, so... We are snowless, but it's kind of a dull gray day. So I'm hoping for more. It was nice when it was here. It was like Christmassy kind of. Now it's gone. <laughs> yeah, so in that part of the world, do you always have a white Christmas or you have days yeah. that it might not? Yeah, up here, we would, I would say we always have a white Christmas. And, and I would say that this is a little odd, although I haven't lived up here for a long time. I grew up up here. Um, it is a little odd not to have snow right now. And the, I, the, I live uh, on a lake and I've watched it freeze and uh, de- unfreeze, defrost, whatever you want to call it, like three times in the last three weeks. What? Yeah. It froze oh, wow. over and then it got warm and it was all, you know, water again. And that now it's frozen again. So it's been, this is the third time it's frozen over. <laughs> Talk about climate but change. But is it safely frozen over or you Not. don't step on it yet? No, we don't go out until they put their ice shacks out there. And then, you know, if they're willing to take a, a risk their lives by putting their ice shacks and their snowmobiles out there, then it's probably safe for a person to walk on. Okay, okay. You know, in Holland, uh, Holland, you never got the uh, white Christmas. Now, once every 12 years or something like that. But yeah, we do have winters. Where it gets so cold that the canals freeze over, and that's wonderful oh. because you can skate on and the canal. People skating, just like the Rita Canal in Ottawa. That's exactly it, and then it it's it's very scenic, I have to say, mm-hmm. and it's lots of fun. I, I'm a really bad skater, so uh, you know, because it happened every once every ten years or something like that, I took off my skates, <laughs> put them on. And then struggled, but uh, there's people that are so enthusiastic that they they start really early. Well, yep. the ice is not very good, so you get these really fun videos of people skating on the ice and then going through. Oh, oh, falling through! Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so not good. it's it's just it's very unsafe in the beginning, of course. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we have a big, uh, yeah, what shall I call it? Uh, competition. If it freezes really hard, it needs to freeze like. Uh, minus 20 centigrades mm-hmm. for at least a couple of, of two weeks to have a thick enough ice to skate this big 200 kilometer uh, oh. route uh, it's a big uh, competition so it doesn't That's happen that cool. often so yeah that exactly. is pretty cool all right today uh, we will uh, keep continuing and i just want to make an announcement because uh, next week we're going to talk with dr mary gartner yes. and i'm so excited because we're going to talk about her new book Yes, and I've, I've I've got it on my Kindle, and I'm reading it, so I'll be well prepared to help with the interview. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
Yeah, so uh, Dr. Mary will be on. Uh, I am super excited because I read part of the book, not everything yet, and it is super. I really love it. It is so, it, I, I would say it's a friendly book for, mm-hmm. for readers. There's lots yeah. of information in there, and she's amazing to talk to. So I'm very excited about uh, yeah. next week's uh, episode. So everybody should listen to that. But right now, uh, we are in our episodes to start discussing some uh, recent articles. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, which one Dr. is the Susan. next one we'll tackle? <laughs> Well, I think we should talk about this one that's about foxtails. <laughs> and, Fox and we should say Dr. Susan picked these articles out for us, right? So she did. She yeah. did. She did. Yeah. So do you what, have that what, article, Yola? I, I, I do. I do. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> We're having some article chaos here. Yes. No, no, no problem. <laughs> so this is articles of retrospective study. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was published in the Journal of Any Emergency Critical Care. Uh, and the title is Clinical and Clinical Pathological Characteristics, Characteristics, Treatment and Outcome for Dogs and Cats with Confirmed Foxtail Foreign Body Lesions. And they have 791 cases between 2009 and 2018. So this took about three years, so four years to get published. Uh, Dr. Philp, Dr. Epstein and Dr. Hopper, uh, they are part of the William R. Pritchard Veneer Medical Teaching Hospital at UC Davis. Uh, and mm. uh, so this is an exciting article. And, I, you know, this is one of those uh, uh, omni-breed articles where multiple breeds are represented. And sadly, in these articles, we see lots of dogs, uh-huh. uh, 754 dogs, but only th- 37 cats. So, right. you know. And these were confirmed diagnoses. So and these were maybe there's more. <laughs> yes, obviously, obviously. But uh, so we'll talk mainly about the cats and now and then we'll just throw a little D word in there just to make uh, because it's such, such, so much more common in the dog than in the cat. Well, and, and I have to a... say, being in Canada, I had to relearn or remind myself what foxtail was because I remember <laughs> yes. learning about it in school. And right. when I studied for my ABVP, but I was like, wait, right. what is this again? Right. Because it's right. very right. specific to a specific geographical area, right? Exactly, exactly. Although they're, they're you know, I've seen them in Holland. I've seen them yep. in, uh, in in the US, of course. Uh, I bet they're in Canada too, somewhere. But uh, just to, to, to focus on cats, the summary of this is that ocular foxtails are the most common in cats. And uh, of the 37 foxtails... 30 were in the ocular region, which I thought was very, very surprising. I always get something out of these articles, even if they're mm-hmm. not written really well. This one is written fine, but sometimes you have articles that are cringeworthy. Uh, but most of the time you get something out of it. And so this, mm-hmm. this, this is the thing that I got out of it. If you have a cat and if you have a foxtail, the foxtail likes to go to uh, the eye region. So, yeah. uh, just to explain, foxtails are the seed heads uh, from grasses. Uh, they have a brush-like appearance, and they are all, also referred to as grass-ons. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously, in Northern California, where this is coming from, it is uh, they have a couple of uh, types that they see very commonly. And uh, these foxtails, uh, you can recognize next to the seeds that they contain. They have little spikelets, little spikes on them. Um, and those spikes have microbarbs. And I'm going to write you how the 
uh, how the article describes the function of the microbarb. So microbarbs on spikelet arms create anisotropic friction, promoting unidirectional migration and prevention of retrograde motion when the spikelet contacts the surface. Oh my gee, this is yeah. the most complicated sentence I've read in a long, long time. And I had to read it like three times to find out what they really mean. But I think there's little spikes on the ons that uh, cause uh, friction movement. And then they cause a movement in only one direction. Yeah, uh, into the eye, that, apparently. <laughs> yes, or anywhere. But that yeah. prevents kind of from like them it. to move the other direction or get out so so that is the very long sentence uh you know there's so many scrabble words in in this sentence alone uh, <laughs> that you probably if you would use all these you would win your scrabble board immediately but uh <laughs> yeah so that's it so what did you think of this article dr kelly i found this interesting I, like you said from the perspective of where these went in the cats compared to the dogs so like primarily into the eye but also in the nose and just thinking about how often we see cats come in with ulcers on the surface of their eye or upper respiratory irritation, and we don't know what the cause is, um, or even just, you know, irritation around the face. And this mm. potentially is something that would be need to be on our radar. Right, right. So the purpose of this study was to provide an updated report on confirmed foxtail foreign body lesions. In a large number of cases, although the large number of cases in cats was not exactly very large. Mm-hmm. It was uh, 37, I think, that uh, that it is. Um, the most common cat breed was the domestic short hair, which is not a big surprise in 70%. Uh, medium body weight is also not a surprise. It's 4.4 kilos. So these are adult cats that get them. That's what I got out mm-hmm. of it. And yeah. then, uh, the, of course, in in California... Uh, they have very nice little graph that shows when these foxtails fox occur. Mm-hmm. And the two things that I got out of it, one is that people bring these animals in very quickly because often when they're in the eye, in the nose or in the ear, which are very common, uh, the cat or D will have a very violent reaction to them. So it is an acute emergency. So they bring them in very quickly. Mm-hmm. Although some of these cases came in after a year or two, uh, these are most of the foxtails that go into the body cavities and take a little bit of time to uh, to show clinical signs. But if you look at the month, the month from April to September were most common, and the summer months obviously were uh, the ones where they saw most of these cases. And that probably mm-hmm. has to do with the fact that these these uh, plants are are having their seats or their foxtails uh, active so i can imagine that that's uh, that's the uh, the main thing mm-hmm. last but not least the uh, uh, most common location once again was ocular yep in 81 percent of the cases uh, in two cats it was found in a nasal canal canal and in two cats uh, it was found in the mouth and then the remaining three were find found on an unique location whatever that means so i need to go to the uh, let's see what it says in the cat so here we go the unique location was uh, the vulva in one sublumbar in one and subcutaneous in one so these things are getting into the skin and migrating 
Yes. So that's really what you see much more commonly in the D or they ingest one and then it goes through the GI tract and then it can go anywhere. So it's, uh, it is uh, in the, in the D word, they had uh, 791 cases and around 900 foxtails. So, uh, and uh, the most common locations of, uh, of the foxtails in the dog is the oral canal. So the ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then various cutaneous subcutaneous locations uh, in about 26%. So the ear was 28%, nasal canals 70%. So uh, different locations. So mm-hmm. my question to you is, why do cats get foxtails in their eyes? I I would just imagine it's their the where they're at height wise. With I don't know how tall these grasses are, mm. but that would be potentially something you would think about if they're walking in a field or something. That's where their eye is at eye level with the where these are on the grasses. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe I think that is hunting. such an in- intelligent answer. Thank you for that because <laughs> I was thinking about it. They don't mention it in the art oh. in the article, and I was thinking about it. Okay, what is the difference right now? So if we would have uh, these at the same height of cats, um, they mm. probably should have ocular too. Let me go to the 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 D result and see if I can find if they have. Well, I think yeah, there's ocular. To... It's they have like of the 700, about 10 percent. Yeah, it's ocular. So they have, have probably the same. Those thing. were right. And also, we could investigate how tall the grasses are. They don't really talk about that in here. Like, right. And whether it's that or the cats are hunting and they're getting their heads deep into the grass because they're right. uh, they're a rodent. I guess if there's correlation there. I, I think this yeah. is really cool. Uh, and so I can imagine then that when you hit that, uh, that there, then it gets into the eye. And obviously the clinical science associated with that is, uh, is, is not very difficult to imagine. No. Uh, so, uh, you know, blepharum, blepharospasm, ocular swelling, uh, probably maybe a little bit tear production, Seems close. Like, yeah. Yeah, as you know, that those are probably the most common signs that you can the see. Ulceration. Yeah. And and yeah, they talk about that they're very commonly associated with ulceration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of the so corneal. That's interesting. Yes. Right. Yeah, the corneal ulceration when they get in the eye. I thought right. that was interesting too. And then just you think about the getting them getting into the nasal cavity or in the back of the throat, that potentially is gonna be really difficult to figure out, right? We had right. a cat. I remember this patient in Susan's practice years ago that was really up making pawing at his face and making all kinds of weird coughing noises. And it had a piece of grass in its eustachian tube, like sticking at the back of the throat. Oh my God. And I thought, how could this possibly be the problem? But, and I don't know for sure that it was, but we pulled the grass out um, and the cat was fine. So, you know, you just think about where the, that piece of foxtail could go if it gets to the back of the throat. Right. Yeah. Wow. No, it, it, but in anything in, you know, if I, I only can imagine something in my throat, you know, and yeah. how irritating it is. So, yeah. So the, the dogs, I, I remember a dog that had a, uh, had a needle in his throat and he was freaking out. And I, yeah. you know, we were like, why, what's going on? Oh, we took a radiograph, of course, and then we saw that needle yeah. and I'm like, I would freak out then too. Yeah, but, for sure. Uh, yeah. So the owners only saw it in 13% of the cases. So they normally see. An eye of a cat with a shut eye, and they don't see the uh, the foreign body. Right. Uh, but do they do? Obviously, you are worried if suddenly your cat comes home with one eye shut. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and I wonder too how often these like these were confirmed cases where they actually found the foxtail. But again, in practice, I've had cats that have eye irritation and ulcers that I've just flushed the eye really well with saline because I couldn't see a foreign body. And then you might have flushed something out that you never saw. So there must be probably other cases in the eye where they don't actually get a, a confirmed diagnosis. Right. Right, right, right. Although it might be harder to uh, to flush these out of the eye based on that awful yes. description about how they stick to everything and don't go backwards. Right now, you you and 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 it also emphasized the fact that you have to do a very good ocular exam, mm-hmm. you know, probably under to, sedation or anesthesia if you're really under, in there. Yeah, and then always check mm-hmm. for coronal corneal ulceration because mm-hmm. a lot of these cases will have that. Uh, so, so I think that that that. Those were interesting things. So the article, it's a really cool article to read. Talks about diagnostics, what you do. But, you know, in most of our cats, you just have to do an eye exam and find it and then remove it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're very fragile. So uh, be sure that you take the whole thing out uh, and and not leave it apart. Otherwise, you yeah. still have uh, problems with that. Um, then... Um, you know, they talked a little bit about surgery, although I don't think that is uh, very much applicable to the cats that we see. So if you are worried about foxtails in cats, uh, surgery is probably not the number one thing that you do. Uh, once again, if you can find them. If you don't, then uh, sometimes in, in some rare cases, they can be in spots. Um, it, it, the article also describes uh, one uh, D word that had one in the bladder. Yeah, how did it get there? It's not the weirdest wow, thing. Did it get there? That's that's a really good question. So I can't give you an answer for that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, and and when it's associated with infection, often anaerobic uh, bacteria are part mm. of. It. They yeah. do say something about uh, actinomyces uh, that they yeah. uh, rarely cultured it, but it's a really difficult uh, bacteria to culture. So I'm not surprised yes. by that. So I was. Yeah. And that was a comment that they made. Uh, so um, outcome is really good for most of these. So um, they lost a lot. So we have 35 or 37 cats survived the discharge, which is interesting. So two cats were euthanized. Uh, one was uh, because it had also lymphoma. And mm. the other one was a stray um, and was emaciated. But the 14 of the 35 cats did fine. Uh, and then only 14 cats came back for uh, a recheck or the client was uh, contacted and they were all doing fine afterwards. So yeah, I think it's a really good prognosis if you find them early. In the D, it's much more complicated because if they, they can be in horrible spots mm-hmm. all over the body, especially in the chest and in the abdomen. It reminds me of porcupine quills, which yeah. we see a lot of up here in dogs. The, right. They bite the porcupine and it gets into their mouth and it gets into their system and tissue migrates as well. Right, right, right. But uh, obviously not in cats. Uh, the, I've seen maybe two or three cats in my career with that have gotten in with the porcupine. Obviously right. not bitten the porcupine, but they have It just proves our, our general suggestion that cats are much more clever. Yes. Don't bite the porcupine. When you see a porcupine, <laughs> uh, just leave it alone. Exactly. All right, so uh, let's go to our uh, last article that we're going to discuss. This is interesting. 
And this is, yeah, so I'll I'll have you kick this one off. Sure. Because uh, I don't want to be too negative in the beginning, but uh, I will have some comments about this article. Yeah. So this one's in the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, um, which is good. Um, and it's called Hematological and Biochemical Reference Intervals in Healthy Ragdoll Cats. And this is a group, I believe, from Italy that was looking at right. a specific ragdoll population Um basically trying to look at whether certain breeds have different reference intervals for different analytes. So they took ragdoll cats and they had a control population that, that were non-ragdoll, some purebreds, but none, they made sure that they didn't have too many purebreds in their control. So um, they compared the reference intervals for the two groups. So the ragdoll population and the non-ragdolls control population and found a couple of interesting things that that were different in the ragdolls for that group, um, you know, that the blood, their average blood sugar, their reference interval was a bit lower. I think there was some changes in the complete blood count that were different. And then as well with the CK, um, absolute lymphocyte number and iron um, that they were, they were looking at and suggesting that maybe there should be reference intervals for individual breeds, which I I found interesting, and you probably will agree with me. They do make the the comment that maybe the blood sugar reference interval was lower because the breed is more docile and relaxed. But I would say that the ragdoll breed overall is no longer that much docile and relaxed. That's what they were initially selected for. But I've interacted with a lot of ragdoll breeds from certain breeding groups, and they're not. So I don't know. Uh, it's it seems like a bit of a stretch. Right. <laughs> and that was in the, uh, in the, you know, in the summary. So it was yeah. highlighted. I, it, you know, as a, if I, I do quite a lot of reviews and I'm the associate editor for JAFMA Journal, but uh, I probably would have deleted that sentence uh, because it's based on nothing. Yeah. It's just a, a, you know, suggestion or uh, it's, um, how do you call it, a stipulation that is not really based on science. No. Uh, and, uh, you know, the only ragdolls that I dealt with uh, were not that docile, indeed. But, uh, <laughs> but that's that's a whole other thing. I think it is, you know, I, I think with these articles, you have to show the data and you have to have scientific, uh, you know, explanations for this. And this was definitely, you know, I, I highlighted in my article. It was just like, OK. Yeah. Well, and you can't control for stuff like stress, right? I mean, you can try and say that the breed is less stressed, but then when they speak about handling and interacting with those cats, they say that they didn't include cats that required traumatic venipuncture more than right. two attempts or exaggerated physical restraint. Um, but what does that mean? And what does what is unexaggerated physical restraint? So they just wrote in brackets more than one person, but that's not really clear. Um, right. And then they you know, they said all patients were kept under gentle restraint. So it's difficult to say from cat to cat what that means. So I think it's harder to, to even comment about lymphocyte levels and glucose levels based on as a, as a symbol of stress or no stress. Right. Just from those things, you can't control for that stuff. Yeah. They didn't measure all the stress factors that you could measure in cats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the other thing, but you know, maybe they do have a really nice population of ragdolls. Who knows? Maybe that would be good. uh, They probably probably know their, their own population better than anybody else. So Mm -hmm. we'll give them the benefit of the doubt there. So what else? What else? 
Well, I think, again, for me with the glucose, I always have an issue with, uh, as we know, if you leave your serum sitting too long on your blood clot, the red blood cells use up glucose. So they do comment in here that they um, drew this sample and centrifuge and separated the serum off within 30 minutes of collection. But my question is, like, was that 30 minutes for everyone? Was it 20 minutes for some um, and so how long were those red cells sitting on the serum to also alter the glucose levels in that serum sample? Because uh, I see that a lot in some of the practice I work at, they don't separate the serum from the clot and they send it out that way. And 80% of their cats are coming back with low blood sugar. And I'm like, well, did you guys don't separate the serum off the clot. So that's something I think it, it's harder to control for us to say within 30 minutes, it's difficult to know if that was... Like it should have been a set time for everything. If it takes that long, it should have been the same time for every single sample. And how do you, I I don't know what they, what they did there. So again, I have a hard time with the glucose intervals because that's not very clear. They mentioned that there are several studies uh, that there is a need for specific RIs like they did in the Burmans and Mancoons, forage cats, Siberian cats. Uh, do you think that that's, you know, do we do, do we need uh, a breed specific RIs? I, I think, I don't know if we need them, but if they were, if we could prove that it was real right across a breed, maybe. But I think the comment that you and I've made at the beginning is that ragdoll breed from, one place to one place to breeder to breeder are not the same cats. Um, So I think the same applies probably to other breeds. And so trying to generate an interval for a breed when there's so many of them across the world, it's, they're different. Right. And I think the other thing is that within labs, we have, we have quality control within labs that set these RIs. And so how would, how on earth would you set RIs for breed specific? You don't have enough numbers. I don't know how the labs would do that. They have yeah, a hard think, time I, separating up for age, age groups, right? Right. Yeah, I think <laughs> you hit the hit hit the nail on the head there for me. Uh, so I don't know a lot of blood blood work and that sort of things and how they do things uh, in the lab. But if I look at this, that there's a very small population that they used. They used a yes. control group within the clinic, which is in a way nice because it's the same circumstances that yep. the blood is drawn from and it's the same person, etc. But then they use techniques. I'm not totally sure if they send these samples up or if they did it in-house. If they would do it in-house, I would be really worried about the results because there's a lot of variation in these in-house uh, equipment uh, yeah. machines. And then I think our E's are, and, and then they don't compare it with our eyes that were uh, published in books. And they said, this is an advantage, but those our eyes are often coming from labs that have hundreds of thousands uh, of yes, samples. Exactly. And that's how they set their our eyes. And now you just take a group of 30 or 40 or whatever it is. And, and yes, of course there will be differences. And um, mm-hmm. I think that this article should stimulate a company like IDEX or something to look at all the rectals that they get yes. and see if there's really a significant difference with their main populations. Now we're comparing 100,000 animals yes. with 550 million or how many they have. Mm-hmm. And then you can really say something about it. So I, I'm a little worried that 
that the end conclusion of this article that there is a need of it is not really proven. It's it's a very small study. They yeah. do mention that, by the way, in the discussion, which I appreciate. Uh, I appreciate how they wrote it up. I appreciate how they how they set it up. But you know, I think a statistician yeah. probably would have warned them in the beginning mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, you you probably cannot do this, or you cannot have really strong conclusions." Uh, out yeah. of it so uh, and yeah. and there's very little known about the control population uh, there's very little known about how they selected healthy cats you know because an ri is normally based on a healthy cat um, and uh, and so there's there is there are some things that i am uh, uh, they had 112 clinically healthy cats but it's clinical so yeah, exactly. Else. And they did uh, some follow-up, I think, two months later, but they didn't do follow-up blood work two months later. Right. Uh, and, you know, when we look at those RIs for labs, like we know they're bell curves and some cats are not going to fall in that bell curve. There's got to right. be a cutoff at each. There's going to be some cats in the tail at either end anyway. So I think more as clinicians, it's important for us to look at where a cat is in that lab value. And if it doesn't fit with the clinical picture then you have to look and say, maybe they're an outlier and and is this real and trend the values? Because that happens so little. We, we get a blood result and we want to make a diagnosis or a conclusion about one test at one day. And right. I think it's more important for us to trend values and recognize that some cats are going to fall outside of the RI. Yeah, and that's a really, really important point. So the relevance of this for me is is questionable. They yeah. do say something about that they picked out a couple of things. I mean, they, you know, they they did talk about urea and creatinine, although the creatinine was not significant, I think. But uh, the yeah. urea was nice. was a little different. Uh, they highlighted iron, the platelet count, but there was also some discussion about that because clumping is normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is, there is, they, and then they say sentence of the magnitude of difference of other hematological uh and biochemical par- parameters is natural, naturalable. Oh gosh, I'm so bad today with the words. So, you it's know, and it lacks <laughs> clinical interest. And that's kind of the general conclusion I have. Yeah. That, you know, the clinical interest of this specific, are, am I going to treat my rectals different right now? No, no. It stimulates some discussion and thought, but it doesn't change anything right. really. Right. So it stimulates really a a question, which is, is breed specific, uh, you know, biochemical and uh, other testing essential or not? Mm-hmm. I, I think only the big companies can probably give that answer. Yeah, um, agreed. For, for me. Great. Another wonderful article that we discussed. Yeah. Thank, uh, you, thank you, Kelly. for And thank you, Dr. Susan, for picking, those for picking them out. I mean, it's so fun because I get to read these articles. I would never read an article like that. It has nothing to do with surgery. So, you know, foxtails, I would have read. Foxtails. But but all the other articles, I was like, no, whatever. Uh, But when you read them, suddenly, like I said, you get something out of anything. Mm, And so I I always appreciate this. So thank you, Dr. Susan. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. Uh, This is the PER podcast episode i don't know how many uh we're like at 162 or something like that lost count i know lost count there but uh, i appreciate everybody listening you can find us on any podcast platform we have a handle at per podcast and we have a website per podcast.net once again 
exciting news. Next week, we'll be talking to Dr. Mary Gardner about her new book. And I'm so excited about that. So, yes, um, me too. Dr. Kelly, thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at Cat Pet Susan. Dr. Yerla Kirkenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Screw Bites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolip app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.